In a world where it seems like there's so much going wrong, I want you to see the people who are spending their lives doing and seeing the good. Welcome to the Doing Good Podcast, where we discuss the stories of people who are changing the world in their own way. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. And I'm so excited to be talking with Heidi Totten today. Heidi started building websites in 1997. Her first attempt was a tribute to Leonardo DiCaprio with Post Romeo and Juliet. That was an incredible movie, by the way. I think like this shows like how old we are. We're like, oh my gosh, that was like the Leonardo moment for me. (laughs) It was, that's awesome. And so Heidi spent 13 years as a recruiter building technical teams all over the world, quit to raise her kids for a few years before jumping into entrepreneurship and helping people with tech and business strategy. She runs the Tech Tribe for coaches and mentors who want to create an online business that integrates their website, membership site with courses and services, email autoresponder and appointment scheduler, which that sounds awesome. She loves to see the light bulb go off about what can be created when entrepreneurs understand how to use technical tools to grow their business. Heidi's helped hundreds of entrepreneurs over the past 10 years. She runs the Heidi Totten Consulting and in 2015 founded 100 Humanitarians International, which is a nonprofit that helps families in Kenya, Africa, learn self-reliance and start businesses. She has led over 250 people on 25 expeditions, which is incredible. Heidi is a three-time best-selling author of Homeschool on Fire, Success Through Failing, and My Masa Name is Nempernot. Mm-hmm. Very okay. good. Nempernot. Her happy place is hauling down roads in Kenya in dusty Jeeps, but she's also known for her love of tacos, guacamole, and chocolate. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It sounds like you are doing some amazing good out there in the world right now. Yes, in between eating tacos and chocolate. Exactly. Because <laughs> you know what? Happy wife, happy life, right? Exactly. For everybody involved. That's really Sometimes true. Sometimes you just got to have your tacos and chocolate. Yeah, that's my love language for sure. So Heidi, you have kind of grown and evolved as as all of us do as we get older, but from you know working with people, starting businesses and entrepreneurship to th- these incredible humanitarian projects in Africa. And I would love, love, love to talk about that. But let's just quickly kind of tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, how you got started doing these things, building businesses, and then how that kind of led into the 100 Humanitarians International. Oh, thank you. It it really, that is exactly what happened is it, you know, we're all on this journey, right? We're on this kind of faith walk to figure out what we're going to do in life. And, and I always tell people, it's just vehicles for learning lessons, right? And we all have different vehicles. And so I started recruiting back in the DC area in, and like, well, let me back up a little bit. I graduated from BYU, not married, and they wouldn't give me a tuition reimbursement. So I said, okay, then. <laughs> I actually asked because my stepmom worked for the like vice, not vice principal, I guess that the vice, vice president of student life. Yeah. And, and so I went in on my graduation day and I said, so I get a tuition reimbursement because I'm not married. Right. And she laughed and said, no. Anyway, so there you go. But, but You're like half the reason people are here is to find a spouse. Okay. Oh, seriously. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Anyway. Right. So I 
I decided to move to the East Coast and that was like a whole other story because I was trying to figure out where to go in life because I was kind of rotting in Provo for a while. And so I ended up just on a whim saying, okay, I'm moving to Washington, D.C. And I picked a date and I packed my car and my cousin and I drove across the country and I didn't have a job. I didn't have a permanent place to live. And I had $800 in my bank account. So Why, in the like, world? Why Washington, D.C.? Well, I had gone to visit and I was like, oh, this is a cool place. <laughs> it was literally like that. No I way. Like, I like this place. Sure. Yeah, let's live here. This, uh, this seems great, you know? Oh and my so, goodness. That would be so terrifying really like for that. me. It was really like that. I just was like, I'm ready for an adventure. And I knew that I needed to kind of figure out who I was away from my family and everyone else, you know, like I got to go figure out who I am and what I can do. And so I, I got a temp job. I mean, that was back in the late nineties and I think 1997 when literally the tech industry in the DC area was huge. And I did love technology and computers and stuff. So I got my very first temp job was at the Watergate Hotel. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so historical. (laughs) No way. It was pretty funny. And so then, you know, it's just my career kind of evolved. I had some great mentors and that's always how it works, right? Is that you have mentors along the way that say, oh, you're good at this and let's have you do this. I mean, I kind of started in HR and then I had a really phenomenal manager who said, wow, you are terrible at HR, but let's put you in recruiting because you like to talk to people. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. So yeah, so I did that for a long time and then ultimately got married and had my son and we were like, well, this is a little far from family if you're going to have kids. So let's move home. And, and we moved back to Utah and, and I didn't grow up here. I grew up in central Phoenix. So it was kind of a a little bit of a culture shock for me having not re- other than college, I didn't spend my time in Utah, you know, oh, um, yeah. as far as growing up. So, although that's a lie, I did spend summers here, but it was different. I didn't go to school here, you know, and all of that. So yeah, yeah. So it was an adjustment for sure. And then about, well, I, I got back into recruiting after my kids were, I had, I have two kids and, and the youngest was 18 months. And I was like, okay, my brain is, melting. you know. I need to do something a little bit more. And so I started recruiting from home and that led me to start my own recruiting company with two business partners. And it was a disaster because while we were really great at recruiting, we were really awful at managing a business. We just didn't know how, but we thought, well, we'll just make tons of money and make up for that, even though no one was business. And so after about 18 months, I shut that down and I was like, you know what? I've got to figure out how to run a business. I've got to figure out what I want to do. So I attended a a business intensive retreat and then signed up for the program and spent two years learning the nuts and bolts of business, which actually became the foundation for being able to even set up a nonprofit, you know, because nonprofits are hard. (laughs) Yeah, so I got into the entrepreneur world, a lot of solopreneurs went to a lot of business training and business conferences and things like that. And ultimately had a group of entrepreneur friends that said, Oh, you should go to Kenya with us. And I was like, why? I mean, you know, there's like 50 countries that I'd rather go to, but 
whatever. Yeah. They were kind of persistent. So I said yes. And it was my second day in Kenya that my heart just blew open. And I was like, I think this is it. I think this is the work that I need to do. Aww. And that everything has led to, to here. And of course, that that was like the beginning of all of the challenges and trials and lessons that come from, you know, starting a humanitarian organization, especially because I didn't have a clue as to what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really almost, would you say it's almost better that you didn't know the work yeah. and the pain? So you really could be like, I'm going to throw myself into this. If you would have known, you would have been like, never mind, way too much work, way too much hassle, can't do it. It's just baffling. Like when I look back, because we just celebrated our seventh anniversary last week. And when I look back, I'm like, I did all of that. No wonder I'm so tired. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's so much easier now compared to back then. When oh, we were I'm sure. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the 100 Humanitarian Project in Kenya. So when you got there, what was the mission? Was it just help build schools? Was it food for food? Was it, you know, work for women? What was it exactly that you were doing when you that first time when you went out there? So that first trip was really about teaching workshops in personal development and life's like life vision, you know, like creating a vision for your life and, and which was great. But my background was in family science is in family science. And I was like, wow, there are so many other things that I see here that need to be done, you know, and yeah. And really like we went to schools and we went to an orphanage and we did all of that. And I was like, who's helping the individual families? Because, yeah. you know, like if, if you're not strengthening the individual families, then sending kids to school and then having them come back to their family of origin, which is poverty and exactly the same is not really going to work very well. And so, so that was one of the major reasons why I, I went back was I was just like, we need to work with individual families. We need to work on making sure that they have sustainable food, making sure that they have water, making sure they have all of these things. And what I realized, you know, and of course I was like, so noble, oh my gosh, we're going to do this and this and this and save the world. And then I was like, wow. In the first three years, I think we worked with like, mm, maybe 15 families and it was kind of painful, you know, because it was like, we didn't have the system right. So we yeah. were really making so many mistakes. And, and, and while there was still some good, I was like, this is a lot of work for very little return on right. doing, you know, right. we, we had this whole business box for families idea where we would donate a cow and then goats and then chickens and then gardens and that was like a thousand dollars and then the cow would die <laughs> and then we'd be like okay well that was a really expensive mistake you totally know? so we flipped that whole model in our third year and we said okay let's start with gardens and if they can take care of the gardens because if gardens die it's not very much money to replace the plants yeah but compared to a cow die, yeah kind of out of luck you know and so so we flipped the whole model and we started saying, all right, let's start with gardens. And if they show stewardship over the gardens, then they can earn a chicken business. And then oh. you know, we do goats and stuff like that. So it, it, and that worked. And we were doing square foot gardens because that's what I had learned how to do. 
Yeah. And then our community directors came to us and said, okay, these square foot gardens are expensive and the termites are eating the wood and we have to cut down trees, which is, you know, that's not a good thing to do in Kenya where they're facing drought. And what about these mesh plastic bags? And they just are, they're vertical bags that have, that are made out of like a shade fabric, right? And then they punch holes in them and they take up about three feet of space and they grow 120 plants. And wow. so he shows, she, he shows me this. I'm like, oh, let's do that. How much are those? You know, like yeah. those, those look better. And so we started doing that in 2018. And then we did several families and we did a community garden. And then I was introduced to Brian Paul, who's the president of the USANA Foundation. And the USANA Foundation is all about feeding the world, but they didn't have a sustainable project. It was just, you know, they're like, well, we're giving out these food boxes and things like that, but, you know, we don't have anything that's really consistent. And and so I walked into his office and, you know, if you can't tell, I'm a little, okay, let's do this thing, you know, like, assertive. assertive. There you go. I was going to say bossy, but, and, but I basically kind of, you know, pestered him to death until they said, okay, let's do a pilot project and we'll fund 200 families and let's really start this. And we said, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. You know, it was the thing ever. And then we got 30 families done. We, you know, brought on, like we have a whole garden team. Now this project employs over 50 people in Kenya. So it's really huge. But then we had our little garden team of five boys and the, the leader of it is a kid named Vincent that we sponsored in school. And it was just, you know, we were kind of trying to integrate all of the kids that we had sponsored in school and so that they would have jobs and stuff like that. And, and we got 30 families in and then COVID happened. <clears throat> and it was like, of course, COVID happened. Of course. And ironically, my team flew, like left the United States on March 10th, 2020 and landed in Nairobi, March 12th, 2020. And then the next day, the whole world shut down and, and we were stuck for two weeks in Kenya and ended up on the like very last flight out. It was literally the, all the embassy families were flying out and we ended up getting on that flight to New York and it was just crazy. And we thought we, right, right before the country just shut down for 13 weeks with no flights in or out. And what would you have done? Were your kids with you? No, it was, it was oh my goodness. me and my two directors. So we were like, well, let's go find a house and live off the grid. And, you know, like, what do you, I not even imagine. Oh yeah, my goodness. I'm sure that our team over there had a plan for us, but they weren't letting us know about it because they wanted us to really make every effort to get out. But all of our flights were getting canceled. It was crazy. So, <sighs> so there we are and we've got 30 tower you know 30 families done and yep. the country shut down and in the meantime we were building a guest house for all of our teams to stay in on the Maasai Mara so that you know they would we would be able to like build that project and we have yeah. five acres we're building a cultural center to help preserve the culture and you know traditions of the Maasai tribe in that area and so so we're trying to build a, a guest house run these projects, the country shut down, the world is shut down. And I'm like, okay, well, let's keep going. I mean, it was just funny. It's funny that 
we didn't say, oh, we should just take a break from all of this. Right. Like, yeah. No, we need to keep going. And so, so as soon as our team could, they started sneaking into families and building more garden towers. And it took a full year to complete those 200 families. And then that started a partnership with the USANA Foundation because it was so successful. And these garden towers will feed a family of five fresh vegetables all week long, as long as they're growing them. And so it, it provides nutrition, it's sustainable, and they'll last up to 10 years. So wow, it really that's an, a an amazing, yeah, it's an amazing project. And now with the USANA Foundation, we're going all over the world. So we host sew-a-thons to sew the garden towers here. Our teams sew them in Kenya, and we're sending them to the Philippines, to Indonesia, Guatemala, you know, we're expanding into Uganda. So it's really become a huge thing with them, which is just amazing to be able to be part of a movement that is literally providing life for people and food. Oh, yeah. for them. So and, and I love that it's it's just such a wonderful example of not giving up if something doesn't work. Like you're like, okay, we're gonna give them a cow and, and animals and and then that wasn't working. And so instead of being like, well, we tried, but it's not working to then be like keep gardens. But then even the gardens didn't work because the termites were eating things and, and with the trees, like it's just, it's amazing how you adapted to, to make it work and you didn't give up. It wasn't like, okay, this is a bust. It's not working. You're like, no, we're going to figure out a way to do it. And it was after several failed attempts that you found something that works. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's often why a lot of humanitarian organizations shut down because it's, it is so hard to work in countries with different cultures, different tribes. There are 44 tribes in Kenya and all of them have different languages and different cultures. And so what may work in one community doesn't work in another. So you have to yeah. do a pilot program and adjust and you know, and truly it was my business background, all the business skills that I learned and my family science background that came together in this collision and said, okay, now you get to figure this out, you know? And, and so, yeah, it was really, I mean, now it's, now we're to the point where our teams, because we have like eight communities that we're working with in Kenya, plus the slums, and we're constantly doing pilot projects to expand into other areas they can build 200 garden towers in a week. You know, I mean, they'll, they'll build them and they build them so fast. We have funding from USANA to do like 2000 garden towers every quarter, basically. Oh my goodness. And so, so, and they're doing it, you know, so literally this year so far, we've done 2050 garden towers in the first no way. Of the year. That and is amazing. Yeah. So, so looking back, I'm like, how come it took us a year to do 200? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. We never done this before. We're trying things out brand new. Like uh, just, it's just, it's so incredible what you've done, Heidi. So oh, if people you. are listening and they're like, wait a minute, this sounds like such an incredible thing to be a part of. Do you have like families and groups that go out and are there places to stay and is it safe? Mm -hmm. And is it, is there like a schedule, like, hey, here's what you do every day, or how can people get involved that are listening? Like, okay, I need this, or my kids need this, or I want to do this. Is that allowed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we run expeditions several times a year. And then this year we started, because we have our guest house and our guest house sleeps eight, it's four bedrooms, four baths. We have an on-site chef. We have an on-site 
like housekeeping and serving and stuff like that. So it's, there's 24 hour security guards. I mean, the, my team in Kenya, I've worked with them now on so many expeditions. Literally, we have four more this year that are planned. Um, that it, it's, we have a whole system in place for it. So it's safe. You fly into Nairobi, you have a schedule, you have a team lead. If you're going as your family, if you want to put together a family service trip, then we can absolutely organize that for you. And, and that's what we're doing. We have a team going, well, a family going over in two weeks and we've organized their whole schedule. They're going to work with the families, building garden towers, delivering water tanks for rainwater capture, things like that. So you get to be assigned to specific families, but you're also, it's cultural immersion. So you're really yeah. being integrated in because everybody that you're working with is Maasai. So yeah. you're integrated in with the Maasai tribe. Our drivers are Maasai. All the families that we're working with are Maasai. In other areas of Kenya, we do have other tribes that we're working with, but, but we don't usually take groups into those areas unless it's like me running it as a separate thing. Okay. So the, the typical trip is mostly focused, but you also get to go on safari. I mean, it's the number one safari destination in the world and we're 10 minutes from the gate. So, so fun. Yeah. So you get to have this unique experience that you can't have as a family anywhere else because we're organizing all of that for you. And it's not just safari, but we also have the infrastructure for all of the service experiences you get to have. And we've taken tons of kids. My daughter's been eight times. So she's no like up with the Maasai. Yeah. What age would you say is a good age for kids to go and, and feel like they can kind of get it and help, but also you know, be safe and all that kind of stuff. What age would you say would be We good recommend to eight and up. Oh, the okay. reason why is because the flight is pretty brutal. You've been to Kenya, <laughs> you know, the, oh, yeah. the flight to get there is pretty brutal. And so eight seems to be about the age where it's handleable and they're more likely to remember their trip, you know? So I first took my daughter when she was 10. And like I said, she's been there eight times. My son's been once, my husband's been once, and, and I've been like 20 times. <laughs> and, and, and so she'll look back on pictures and be like, oh, I vaguely remember, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. first trip, but not specific details. But now, you know, she goes at least once a year. And now she's like, obviously knows everyone. She participates in projects. She actually helps lead training in some of the things that we do. And so it's been pretty amazing to see how she's developed over the years. And of course, all the Maasai have watched her grow up and they have their nicknames for her. And I'm like, it's so weird. Like that is such a different world for oh. you to grow up in. Oh, completely. When my husband and I, we went in 2006, I'd actually won the trip from Fear Factor. And so mm. we went to, same thing, we flew into Nairobi and then we went, we did the safari club and a bunch of other stuff in Kenya. And then the last couple days we took this tiny little plane out to the Maasai Mara tribe mm -hmm. and we stayed on kind of the banks of the Maasai Mara river. And then we did a safari and we went out to the tribe and our driver was Maasai. And mm -hmm. we said, I'm just kidding. I know you, you probably would have this, was, <laughs> but this was in 2006. This was a while ago, but he, we said, he's like, was listening to the radio or something and he like knows about the technology. He like knows about TVs. He knows about smartphones. He knows about all sure. that. And he's like, but, and then he leads tours of tourists, you know, coming on safaris. And we're like, and he, and he chooses to stay, he chooses to live there. And we're like, why, why do you like knowing 
what's out there sleep in these mud dung huts mm -hmm. with nothing, nothing. And he's like, it is such a peaceful life for me. He said, yeah. I have a home. Like he has, he has like an apartment in Nairobi or something too. And he said, I choose to live this life. I choose yeah. to live out here. I choose to be here with my family and, and with, you know, my, you know, people that I grew up with that and he said, it's just such a sweet, peaceful life. And it is completely different. It's like an ancient way of living. And he's like, I actually, I enjoy it. I'm happier when I'm here. When I go back into the city, it's the rat race of everything and it's hustle and bustle. And it's, he said, there's, you know, obviously pros and cons of both lives. He's like, I, I choose, I would rather live out with the tribe out here on the plains than back in the city. And I'm like, I cannot even imagine that. Like it was so hard for my American mind to imagine like literally being out in the middle of nowhere with lions and elephants and wild animals with nothing. I'm like, what do you do all day? Like, what, what do you do? And they're like, you just live. Like you just live. I would say after 20 trips, I, I have a greater understanding and appreciation for it. You know, it's interesting because the the traditional Maasai are very traditional. It is what yeah. they know. It's how they grew up. It's how they feel comfortable. And, you know, it was so funny. We we actually built, so we have, we're building a cultural center and the, the land is our executive director. It belonged to our executive director in Kenya and his family. And so his mom lives right behind where the cultural center is. And so I got super ambitious. His father passed away in 2017. And I was like, I'm going to help take care of his mom because she's my Maasai mom. And so I was like, we're going to build her a house because she just had a manata, which is the mud huts. And I was like, we're going to build her a house. And so, so we helped build this beautiful two bedroom house. It's, you know, it's got a living room and a kitchen and, and everything. And, and I was so excited for her. And then it, it was funny because I went to go and visit her. I think this was last April and the house was finally finished. And she said, and she doesn't speak English very well, but her granddaughter was there who spoke English and her granddaughter said, oh, she wants you to see her kitchen. And I said, okay. So we go around the corner and there's a manata sitting there and I go in and there's the fire and, and I sit down and I looked at her granddaughter and I said, where does she sleep? And she said, right here. And I'm like, okay. Not in the so house. To the family. Yeah. They they'll sleep in the house and, and different, you know, children and nieces and nephews and grandchildren and stuff like that will sleep there. But she's, and I said, okay. And I just, okay. Now I could choose to be like, oh my gosh, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, no, that's her culture. Yeah. That's she feels safe and comfortable, but she loves the house. She loves showing people the house and it's serving members of the family. So that's right. great, you know, Right. but I learned in that moment, I'm like, okay, don't try and change them. They are who they are. Empower them with tools to make their lives easier. As you mentioned, they live with elephants and Cape Buffalo and lions. What we discovered last November was that a lot of the women they have to go walk for water three times a day, right? Yep. We hear about that all over the world. 
But when they walk to water three times a day, they're sharing their water source with elephants, Cape buffalo, and lions. So they're literally, their lives are in danger every single day, every time they go to get water. They can't bring their kids, so they have to find someone to watch their kids. This takes like six to eight hours of their day just gathering water. When do they have time to do anything else? Right. You know, like their entire day is made up of gathering water and figuring out how they're going to feed their family. And so I started looking at it like, okay, what can we do to bring water closer to them that's safer? Like we could drill a borehole at our cultural center. It's expensive because they have to go down so far because they have to bring in the big rigs and, you know, the water table is is pretty low and stuff like that. But I was like, if we can drill a borehole there, then we can pipe the water out to access points closer to the yeah. road where the animals don't go. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so I'm like, that will make their life easier, but we're not changing their culture and exactly. we're not their traditions. Yes. And, so, and that's really important to me all over the world. Give them access to better tools and better resources, but don't try and change who they are and certainly don't turn them into Americans because we've got our own problems, you know? Yep. Yep. I love that you are coming up with solutions like that, that it's because when they do go walk for water, it's, it's the stories that they tell it's socialization. It's, mm -hmm. it's so much more. And so if you take that away and you put indoor plumbing in there, a, a part of their purpose would feel lost. They would lose their community. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so I think it's so great that you look at a culture like that and say, okay, how can we make this safer and yet still have them feel like, but this is my purpose. This is what we do. This is tradition and keep those alive too. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important and so cool that you're able to do that. Is there ever, has there ever been an experience where you've been there that was kind of nerve wracking or scary with either with animals or people? Yeah, one time we were, it was actually, it was actually a, a demonstration in the road and we drove up in the Jeep and we were in two different Jeeps and one of the Jeeps went ahead and, and was able to get past, but there was a barricade and I can't remember what they were protesting, but they were burning tires and stuff like that. We were, we were sitting at the front, we were towards the front and all these cars piled up behind us so we couldn't turn around to go anywhere and i mean we couldn't have anyway there's like one road you know and yeah, so yeah we waited there for a while and it was getting hotter and and finally one of the i think there were nine of us in the jeep and one of the women said i really need to use the washroom and i was like too bad I mean, that's fine. There's a bush over there. I mean, but that's it. You know, like there's no washroom around here, which no. is you know, like, that's, we, we do outdoor, outdoor latrines all the time. And, yeah. and so, anyway, so she was like, well, I could cut off this bottle. And I think it was like an ASEA bottle or something that was in the, she's like, I could cut it off, make it. And so I told our driver, David, I was like, Hey, Gigi needs to use the washroom. So she's just going to cut off this bottle. And this was like, probably our fourth trip. And he's like, no, no you know, like now it would be, I wouldn't even care, but yes. he was, no, no, no. Okay. Let me figure something out. Well, there were some Rangers that were just kind of overseeing this protest. And so David went up and talked to them and, and then he said, okay, come up here and, and, you know, go behind these bushes and stuff like that. So we did. And when I went back and I talked to, or, and I saw the Ranger, I, I said, because they had started talking about that they were going to do tear gas or something like that. And I looked oh. at the ranger and I said, tear gas. And I gestured to the nine American women that I had right there. And I was like, 
You sure about that? And because we were right in front and they, the big thing is they don't want scandal. They don't want there to be problems, you know, like they want people to feel like they can come and be safe and go on safari and tourism is a huge part of their GDP, you know? Yes. And so all of a sudden the protests broke up and we drove through right after that, you know? So I didn't ever feel unsafe because we were mostly just sitting there, but I was like, okay, it's time to move this along, you know? Yes. I've never had situations in every in every case, our team can handle it. Like our drivers can handle it. They're Kenyan. They know what they're doing. I've never felt like our lives were in danger. The only really scary thing was when we were stuck in Kenya. And then it was yes. like, how are we going to get out? But I didn't feel like we were in physical danger at all. I've never felt physical danger in awesome. Kenya. And I get it. You know, you can read... You can read online and it'll be like level three, you know, alerts for terrorism and stuff like that. That's really on the Somalia side of the country, which we're nowhere near it, you know? So, but people go on safari all the time and that's the area that we're in. So no, there's never really, I, I mean, I've never had any fear of that at all. I know that that's a big fear for others. The, what I tell people is I'm like, listen, you need Kenya far more than Kenya needs you. You need the peace you need to experience a different culture. You need yes. to just have time to just be out in nature and experience the, the, you know, the funniest thing that happens is that people on our expeditions will say to me, what time are we doing this? And I'll say, what difference does it make? Do you have someplace else you need to be today? Yeah. I'm like this, we don't go on a time schedule. It's, and next we're going to do this, but I don't know what time that's going to take place because we're not all looking at clocks. That's yeah. an American construct is, you know, being on time. They don't, that's not something, unless you're going on safari and then you have to be there at 6 a.m. But yes. beyond that, they live at a different pace and it's a pace that we need to see and experience so that we can implement it more in our own lives. Like I know how it's changed me doing all of these trips that even in the U.S. I'm like, slow it down, Heidi. You yeah. don't have to get everything done all the time in one day, you know? So I love that really concept. I love that concept of not looking at a clock. And it is, it's our whole lives are run by Kane. Okay, then at 1130, we're doing this. And then at two o'clock, we're going to do this. And four o'clock is this instead of, well, when we're done with this, then we'll do that. May take an hour, may take four. That would be really hard to adjust to. That would be a difficult thing to kind of wrap your mind around like, wait, but I need to know when, because I like knowing when, when something's done. I like having a time frame for everything too. So that would be difficult, but I yeah. do think that it, Oh, like you said, it, we, we need that culture, that experience as much as they mm -hmm. need our help in humanitarian work. I, it, we can bless each other's lives for sure. Oh, for sure. I've learned far more from Kenyans than they've learned from me, you know, just about life's lessons. There's such a peaceful people and yet they have so many challenges and and yet they're so happy i'm sure you experienced that where it's oh, like oh yes wow, they have nothing and they're happy and we have everything and we're not yes so it teaches you a different level of gratitude but you know some like 25 percent of people who come with us on expeditions come back no way. Like, i i need it i need it in my life so, so tell people yeah. that are listening right now, where can people go to find out more about the expedition, signing up, 
-hmm. when they are, how to get involved, if they're like, okay, hey, this sounds like something I want to do. Well, we're everywhere. Obviously, our website is 100humanitarians.org, the number. We're on Facebook. We have a group and a page. The group is pretty active. I'm constantly updating people on the projects that we're doing. Every donation, like it's 100% of your donations go to the projects. So I have like this radical accountability of replying and, or making sure that people know and can see where their donations have gone. So it's not just in a black hole somewhere. So I'm constantly updating that so people can see what, you know, what they're doing and what they're contributing to. I post when our expeditions are. You can also just reach out to me and, you know, message me on Facebook and say, I want to plan a trip for my family. What does that look like? And we can put that together. It's obviously based on the activities that you want to do as well. Awesome. But we can put that together for you. And, you know, you can see pictures of our guest house and, it's really nice. We have the best chef in Kenya, truly. Oh my goodness. And, and Kenyan food is amazing. Mm -hmm. It really is so good. The fresh fruits and vegetables. And I mean, it's incredible. I'm like getting so excited. I would love to do something like this with my boys so badly. How old are your kids? Well, my youngest is seven. He'll be eight next year. Perfect. So like next year, I'm going to be contacting you. I'm serious. Okay. I would love to do and just just for them to just see like, oh, wow, we are so lucky and so spoiled. Well, we just had a family that got back two days ago, Becky McIntosh, who, yes. yeah, she's one of our team leads and, and her family just went over. She runs an expedition every year as well, every February with her husband, Scott. And so Becky and her son, Tosh, and his wife, Maggie, and their three kids, and then Maggie's mom, they all just went over, just got back a couple of days ago and did a family trip and just loved it. And and wow. in fact, Becky said to me, she said it was Tasha's favorite trip ever and he's been all over the place. No so. way. That is amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I would love to. I think you are just doing amazing things, honestly, oh, Heidi, you. with everything that you're doing. In it. And I love that your experiences and Heavenly Father can use our tools and life experience to just do amazing things in life. And it's not always how we think it's going to, life doesn't turn out how we think it is. It's not always, well, I was training for this and like a business and I'm entrepreneurship and whatever. And then it, it but it's like, yes, that, that was awesome tools, but that's actually to lead you to something else. And I love that you were so receptive to doing something completely out of your comfort zone and building this from scratch and you are blessing so many lives. So thank you for coming on the podcast, explaining a little bit more about what you do and, and how people can get involved and really help change the world. Thank you for all the good you are doing. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Carmen. It's been really, it's really fun to talk about it. And, you know, obviously it's one of my favorite topics um, Yes. and it is, it has been such a faith walk and it really is amazing when you see how God trained me for this, starting 20 years ago. Yeah. You know? And and we joked at the beginning about me not being married, but back in Virginia, I attended Institute. I was the, you know, I was an Institute teacher. I was on the Institute Council. I had all of these experiences as part of that, that had I not had those experiences that taught me how to rely, rely on God for these types of things. And now I'm just like, what are we doing today? 
yeah. Yep. And yep. Says, hey, this, this, and this. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. So it's you, you've strengthened those muscles, those faith muscles. And once you do that, and once you get on that path and you're leading that type of life where you're like, I am on the path that God intended for me to be, and I'm serving the people I'm, I'm meant to serve. It's powerful, you know, and, and all of the other conflicts and challenges in the world kind of go away because you're just like, I got it. I got what's right for me. And that is so valuable. It's so valuable to have that. It is. And, and amen to all of that. And so inspiring. And it's, it's just another beautiful testimony that Heavenly Father is in charge of our lives. Mm -hmm. And, and if we let him, and if we have faith that he can make more of our lives, more of ourselves than, than we could on our own. And I love that. It's so, it's just a, a, wonderful reminder of when you trust him amazing wonderful things can happen and he can use us to bless the lives of others and that's incredible yes. thank you thank you Heidi I am Carmen Herbert and I'm so excited to tell you about an amazing app that my whole family loves it's called our turtle house and it's full of literally thousands of hours of full-length talks, just like the old talk on CDs or talk on tapes, from some of your favorite Latter-day Saint speakers like John By the Way, Mick Johnson, Hank Smith, me, and a ton more. Plus, there's podcasts, firesides, devotionals, come follow me resources, and entertaining content your whole family will enjoy, truly, all in one little app. And you can use promo code doing good, all one word at checkout, and you get a full month free. So check it out and sign up at ourturtlehouse.com. See you soon.